take our Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. When we use the phrase, just trust me, we're implying a number of things. And though we could be implying a lot of things, there are at least two realities you are implying. If, if you say to me, just trust me, First, you are implying you are dependable, right? In other words, you are suggesting you are worthy of my trust, then trustworthy. And you are implying that you have the skill set necessary to fulfill whatever thing it was that encouraged you to say, just trust me. So, dependability and ability makes you trustworthy. I'll give you an example. If you were to come up to me with car trouble, tell me about your problem, and and I were to tell you, just let me handle it, just trust me. Don't, all right? Don't. It's for whatever reason I've lied to you, okay? And I've suggested that I've got some kind of ability fix your car. I don't, all right? However, if you need help roasting your own coffee or making a fabulous chocolate mousse, believe it or not, I am your guy, all right? Believe it or not, I am your guy when it comes to those things. Some of you are already troubled that I know more about mousse than engines and you won't hear anything else I say for the rest of the morning. Nonetheless, I hope you can get past that and consider that really what I think Paul is doing for us in Romans chapters 9 through 11, he is addressing this same kind of issue. I mean, Paul has said a lot about what God promises to do in the gospel, and yet as we have seen, we get to chapter 9 and there's kind of this glaring issue out there. God made a lot of great promises to Israel in the Old Testament. Yet the vast majority of Jews are unbelievers. So, so Paul, what's the deal here? Is God really trustworthy? Can we really depend upon God? If God made all of these wonderful promises to Israel, and yet Israel still is living in unbelief and rebellion to God, does that mean then that all these wonderful, great promises that He has made to us in the new covenant, in the gospel, can we really trust Him? Can we we trust 
this same God. So Paul was addressing what some critics, especially in his day, thought was kind of their trump card, so to speak, over Paul's argument for the gospel. They were arguing that Paul's entire thing crumbles because God really hasn't been faithful to the Jews of the Old Testament. So chapters 9 through 11 is a further declaration and defense of the gospel. I mean, Paul fundamentally is writing these chapters as a way to say, first off, God wasn't unfaithful to the Jews. God wasn't unfaithful to those promises. And he tells us why in these chapters. And you can with full confidence declare this gospel. In fact, you should be declaring this gospel to the ends of the earth. Because it is only in Christ Jesus that people can be saved. So chapters 9 through 11 is really Paul defending the trustworthiness of God. God is dependable. He's got the character and the ability to fulfill His promises. And so, we've been taking our time uh, getting into this chapter. There's no small amount of controversy with these verses, as we've kind of already noted and so our focus has really been on, on this, looking at what, what I think are five basic principles Paul walks us through in these three chapters to defend this basic idea as a way to show, yes, God's gospel, God's faithfulness, uh, it, it is dependable, it is trustworthy, uh, we, we can have full confidence in the gospel, not only the gospel that saves us, but that will save others. And so, to, to lay this out, he first begins in an unusual way. First point we spent a few weeks talking about. He encourages first to have this compassion for the lost. Compassion for the lost. So, the first five verses, you know, Paul bears his own soul, saying, I wish that I could be accursed for the sake of my brethren. And we spent two weeks kind of unpacking this and thinking then about our own compassion for the lost. But then he gets into the meat of the argument, beginning in verse 6. And his second argument, I think, is fundamentally what we've just been saying. Trust in God's election. So, so for the majority of chapter 9, this is what he's fleshing out here. I, I know a lot of folks can be uncomfortable when you hear words like predestination. You hear words like election. If you've been coming to Tabernacle for any minute, amount of time, this is not the first time you've heard these terms. If you've been in Romans, it's not the first time you've heard these terms. We've talked about this, and we've talked about the relationship between God's sovereignty and the language of predestination and election, while at the same time recognizing humanity's responsibility to God and for their own sin and rejection of the gospel. In chapter 9 this, and 10, this comes up again. Chapter 9, talking about election... Chapter 10, talking about human responsibility. In chapter 9, verses 6 through 29, Paul addresses head-on this issue. Can we trust God? Did God really stay faithful to the folks in the Old Testament? If, if all of these Old Testament Jews, if they're still not believers, how do we know that God was faithful? And Paul's basic point is to say this. God never promised to save them all in the first place. In other words, if you're assuming that somehow God has failed to keep His promises because not all of the Jews or even a majority of the Jews believe the gospel, you've missed the point. God never promised 
to simply save somebody because of their ethnicity and or heritage. Just because they can trace their genealogy back to Papa Abraham does not matter. That does not afford you any kind of special status in God's sight. And that, in fact, God has always been working in regard to this idea of election. So Paul unpacks this. Paul unpacks this idea of God's electing work. Three basic ideas. Last week we looked at one. And that is that that God in His sovereignty has always been doing this. God has always elected some and passed over others. And He gives us the examples, verses 6 through 9, where He talks about, well, first of all, God, God chose Abraham. I mean, over everybody else in Ur, and there wasn't any reason why, Abraham was just as much a pagan as everybody else in that city, yet God decided to call him out. Then He takes it one further step. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. God chose Isaac. God elected Isaac. Well, some might say, uh, well, but all right, but we know the whole deal with Ishmael, all right? That wasn't legit, okay? That was Abraham and Sarah taking matters into their own hands, and all that was kind of a sordid, soap opery kind of deal. So, of course, Ishmael's not the guy. Of course, it would be Isaac. Then Paul gives kind of his ringer argument here, in my estimation. We referenced it last week. We're going to jump back into it again this morning. He goes one step further. Yeah, God chose Abraham, and God chose Isaac, but Isaac and Ishmael had the same dad but not the same mom. And so, now he takes us to the third generation and points out to us Jacob and Esau. And he brings up what we just read there. Consider then Rebekah. She conceived. She gave birth to sons. This was by one father. And I, and I made much of this last week, and I hope you've had time to wrestle with this, because I think you should. I think we should. That, that in doing all that God did, the text is clear. This text is quite clear. God did not choose Esau. The two sons were born. God not only chose Jacob, Jacob, though, was the younger son. But all of this needs to be understood in light of the fact that the birth of Jacob and Esau was a, mira- was a miracle. Rebekah was barren. Genesis tells us that. God gave this blessing to Isaac and Rebekah, and what did he do? He could have just given them one child, right? He could have just given them Jacob. But he gives them twins. Why does he do that? Why would God give them twins? Why even make this an option? Why even give us this little complicated little tidbit in salvation history? Why even do the whole Esau thing? It tells us right there in verse 11. The children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of Him who calls. God provided twins for the very purpose of illustrating His work of election. That's why He did it. Now, if you can come up with some other reason, great. I'm going to need to see chapter and verse, though. 
I got, that there is no other chapter and verse I know of that explains anything else but verse 11 to say, why would he do that? If it was a miracle in the first place, that means God did this deal intentionally. And it goes a step further where God makes it clear to Isaac and Rebekah, the older shall serve the younger. In other words, he's, he's again using this example to say God's never guaranteed that lineage would determine your relationship with God or to the covenant for that matter. It's always been God's work of election. And if you were to go on and read the Old Testament, you'll find those that God describes as being saved are those who are of the remnant. So even in those who are sons of Jacob, God even has a smaller group that gets saved. This is always how God has been at work. God's used His work of election. Keep in mind here, I mentioned this last week, we're talking about an issue that has two sides to the coin, right? We want to make sure we're asking our questions and making our comments in light of the side of the coin that we're on. And the side of the coin that we're on is God's sovereignty. You and I are radically limited in our ability to fully understand this side of the coin. Don't worry, He's going to get to the other side of the coin, You're concerned about free will. You're concerned about responsibility. You're concerned about choice. We'll get to it. Chapter 10 gets to it. But for now, Paul is illustrating what is the greater reality, the overarching sovereign work of God to choose some and pass over others. I know that's hard, right? I know. I understand the wrestling with the doctrine. It is a doctrine you should wrestle with. It's a doctrine that should create a lot of humility. It's a doctrine that should force us to look square into the face of God's sovereignty and say, I just don't understand it all. I think that's intentional. I think it's intentional. Boy, the thing gets worse, doesn't it? I say worse. I mean, it gets harder. If it just stopped at verse 12, maybe it's not so hard, but it doesn't stop there Paul then quotes from the book of Malachi in verse 13 and says, As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Some of you may be thinking, I hate that verse is in there. All right? You won't admit it on Sunday morning to all of us, you know, shiny, bright, clean people, okay? But in your heart, it's one of those verses, that is a goad that we kick against, is it not? I mean, that, that is something that just hits at the human heart. Wow. End at verse 12. Older shall serve the younger. Okay, I can massage that one. Now, the good news here is that there's some background uh, I'm not going to get into. Uh, and and I, I need to make sure you understand something that I said last week, all right? John preached Malachi chapter 1. That's what Paul's quoting from. Paul's quoting from Malachi chapter 1 where Malachi uses this language to talk about the fate of Israel over the fate of Edom, Edom being the descendants of Esau, saying, Jacob I have loved. In other words, Israel is blessed by God under the covenant of God, and, and Edom experiences judgment. In fact, if you read Malachi, the judgment is severe. The language of they are laid to to waste, meaning they're scrubbed from the earth is the language there, all right? 
So John preached on this. I might have implied last week that this week I'm now going to make all that right, okay? That's not what I was implying. John did a great job. If you want to listen to Malachi 1, go back to July 22nd, all right, and listen to the background, and you can get a fuller explanation then of where Paul is drawing this from. But I, but I think as far as we're concerned, really, though that background is, impo- is important because that is indeed the example that he's using, and he's using it to really illustrate this work of election, that God based on nothing but Himself, based on nothing but Himself. It's not based on the fact that Jacob was a great guy, right? Was Jacob a great guy? Go back and read the story. Jacob was deceitful and wicked. What about Esau? What, what kind of guy was he? He was a violent pagan. In other words, in terms of being parents of the year, Rebecca and Isaac would not be on the list, all right? I'm, I'm telling you, they, they, were, they were not the best. Rebecca was all neck deep in this thing, wasn't she? If you go back and read all these stories. These were not noble, righteous men of faith and character. They were both wicked. And God decided to love Jacob. And to hate Esau. Now I know what you're thinking. Hate Esau. I mean, we we even teach our kids, don't use the word hate, right? Hate's a strong word. Don't use that word. Dislike, not not my favorite. Some have even tried to explain this verse away by saying it's a Hebrew idiom that means God loved Esau less than he loved Jacob. I would just invite you then to return to the Malachi 1 passage that John preached from and tell me if that really holds up. Because what God did to Edom was unleash His wrath. If that's just less love, then I'd really hate to see what hate looks like, all right? Now here's the thing, though, that you don't want to do. When you read that phrase, don't read into it all the baggage you and I bring with it. Quite frankly, we shouldn't read all the baggage into the word love that we bring with it either. So when it says that God hated Esau, get rid of all of what you think about the word hate. When we think about the word hate, what do we think of? We think of an emotion, right? We associate it with anger. We associate it with kind of this irrational, eruptive kind of language. You know, we associate it with somebody who's become maybe unhinged. Talk about hatred is to talk about somebody maybe narrow-minded and, and, and ignorant who, who just seems to have this, this intention to, uh, to speak and act in a manner toward others that, that, that is consistent with being you know, ugly and vindictive. God can never be that. Hatred does not mean that when it applies to God. Hatred doesn't mean vindictive. It doesn't mean angry in terms of this is some kind of irrational reaction where God's patience build, it builds and builds until He finally erupts and He's had enough, right? Parents, you know what I'm talking about with this kind of reaction, don't you? No, none of you do, all right? You're patient and patient and patient until you then erupt. I'm going to take all of your toys and burn them, Right? You all have never said that, right? 
This is not what God's doing. God's not irrational. In fact, when the language says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, you can think of hatred in regard to God's judgment and God's wrath. In fact, you could just say this, God of His own free will and choosing decided to choose Jacob and thereby bestow His covenant love upon him and then pass over Esau, leaving him to his sin in which he willfully and willingly indulged and to face the wrath and judgment accordingly. I think this is what he's getting at. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. So again, it's not some kind of emotional state. It's not where God is somehow being irrational here. It is his decision to to treat Esau in one way, and Jacob in another. Here's what's important about all of it. This is what is critical about every bit of this. God is just in doing so. God is just in doing so. Now, we'll flesh that out here in just a minute, but just know right from the beginning that there's there's nothing about this. Paul is using this as an argument to say... All right, God God has never promised this blanket salvation to Israel because God's never worked that way. In fact, we see His election all along the way, even in the three big names of the Old Testament. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God has demonstrated His plan of election. This is how God's always worked. Now, I do want to address just quickly something. Some will say, well, Paul's not talking about individuals here. He's talking about nations. This is a way some people try and deal with the text. Not only will they say he's dealing with nations, he's not dealing with individuals. Furthermore, he's not even dealing with salvation because verse 12 says, the older will serve the younger. I find all of this radically unconvincing. Just at its basic level, what are nations made up of? Individuals, right? So you don't get out of anything. If you just want to say he's talking about the nation of Israel versus the nation of Edom, you still haven't solved any kind of potential theological, philosophical dilemma because you're still talking about people. Furthermore, the rest of chapters 9 through 11 is clearly addressing the individual salvation issue. If this isn't talking about individuals, then neither is Romans chapter 10, which is a clear encouragement for individuals to place their faith in Christ. So I don't find any of that convincing. I think we try and maybe lessen the intensity of this because we think it makes it easier to understand or to communicate, quite frankly. I think we just have to trust God. I know that sounds a bit trite, doesn't it? But I do think that's what the text requires of us. Quite frankly, I'm in no position to evaluate the rightness and wrongness of verse 13. Are you? Do you find yourself in a position where you can adjudicate God's decisions? Do you really find yourself in a position where you think you can determine the justness, rightness, appropriateness of what God did or didn't do? I'm pretty sure I'm not in that peer group. There's only three in that peer group, and they're all one, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. God is His own peer group, and I'm not a part of it. God is not accountable to me. God has never been accountable to me. God can do as 
He wills. Now, I know some people hear this and they also think, all right, pastor, I've got it. It's tough. It's a harsh kind of idea. you've, You've got this. God, you know, the, the love for Jacob and hatred for Esau. But what about John 3.16? Doesn't John 3.16 say, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life? I will say, by the way, just in the verse itself, Some people like to focus on the world. I would focus on the whoever. That's another sermon, by the way. But I I think the focus is on the whoever, not on the world. Okay, Whoever believes is the focus of the verse. But listen, this doesn't do anything to that. In other words, what Paul says here, this is not like a dueling banjos. Well, Jesus said this. Well, Paul said this. When, when, When it says God so loved the world, this is simply language that says that the The gospel, the work of Christ on the cross, was a global expression of love in that it's open and accessible to everybody, whether Jew or Gentile. It makes no difference. The gospel is accessible to all. That is what he means by God so loving the world. No one really believes this means God then equally and equitably, according to the way we define it, shows the same kind of love to every single person on the planet. We don't really believe that. I mean, maybe you do, but if you do, you're going to have to justify that one, because that seems tricky to me. No, what, what John 3.16 simply means is that God, God in, his, in His goodness and grace has made this gospel accessible, available. It is for everyone in the world. But not everyone's going to be saved. It's accessible. It's open. It, 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 is, it is a visible work of God. That's that's the nature of the love. In fact, you go on to read. A lot of people like to read John 3.16. I'd read through verse 21. Because it's very clear that those who are condemned are described as being condemned already because of their unbelief. In other words, there's wrath in that one too if you read it all. So I, I don't think this changes anything. I think these all line up perfectly together. But the truth is, God has always worked according to this kind of election. He he shows some love, and He passes over others. Now, just so you know, by the way, this verse, is this language is not uncommon in the Bible. I do have some verses. We may have to go back a couple. I do have some verses that that share this same kind of thing. For example, Psalm 5, 4 through 6. Listen to what this says. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Quite frankly, I would say Paul's language is a little less intense. This is in the Psalms, right? What do we usually associate the Psalms with? Songs of joy or encouragement, songs in the midst of heartache, but part of it testifies to this very same thing. I think it's problematic theology that suggests God's love is somehow equitable in the way we regard it to be equitable. Let's go on to one more, Psalm 11:5. The Lord tests the righteous, 
But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. And this is not unusual language. It's not like we got one wild hair here with Romans 9 or Malachi 1. This is language that the Bible uses. I had to finish on this last week just, just to reiterate it. The scandal of Romans chapter 9, verse 13, is not the last phrase. It's the first one. The scandal of the chapter, the scandal of the gospel, the scandal of what God has promised to do to us, for us, in Christ Jesus, is not found in the fact that some people get passed over. It's found in the fact that anybody gets saved at all. Listen, we just spent 30 minutes singing about this great mercy of God. Only in this doctrine do you really understand God's mercy. If there are folks who insist that somehow God has to be fair and equitable in the way that I understand fairness and equity, then no longer do you believe in mercy. Mercy by definition means what? I don't deserve any of it. We're all Esau. All of us deserve to be passed over. I know we don't think that. We don't really think that. Just evaluate your heart and mind in light of the Word. Now, I think we still like to think we're pretty good folk. But we're not. We certainly haven't risen to the level of God's righteousness. No, my sins, they are many. But His mercy... His mercy is more. By the way, this should thrill your soul. I know this may sound odd. Again, I know we get hung up on the whole Esau, I hated thing, but I am telling you what should thrill your soul is that there are Jacobs out there that God even loved in the first place. There shouldn't even be a Genesis chapter 4, but there is. There shouldn't even be a Genesis chapter 7, but there is. There shouldn't be anything after the book of Exodus, but there is. There shouldn't be anything after the book of Judges, but there is. There shouldn't be anything after what they did to Christ, but there is. There shouldn't be anything but judgment reserved for all of humanity. But God, in His great grace and mercy, uh, for no other reason but in and of Himself, decided of His own free will to save sinners who were, who were going to be condemned in their sin. What was his motivation? Was it that you were a good fella? Was it that you were a fine gal? Was it that he looked down the tunnel of human history and saw you were going to make good decisions? Listen, folks, you know very well what God sees when he looks down the tunnel of your life, and if you find anything in that that deserves something other than condemnation, you've not looked hard enough. The truth is, God looked down that tunnel and saw very well that every single one of us were Esau's, but in his grace, God decided to save. That's the good news. That's the good news. The scandal is in Jacob I love, not in Esau I hated. The scandal is in why does God love any of us? Why does God love any of us? This is God's good news to us in the gospel. Why? Now, some, now you may, again, some people may get hung up on this. And, and next week we'll jump into it, all right? We'll, we'll go on because what I love about Romans 9, it's quickly becoming one of my favorite chapters. This is going to sound odd. Favorite chapters in all the Bible. Because here's what I love Paul does. Paul does not care if you and I understand how all this works. He just doesn't care. What I mean by that is he doesn't try and philosophically put all these things together. In fact, you know what he's going to say? When somebody cries out in verse 13, that's unjust, that's unrighteous. You know what Paul's going to do? 
He's going to double down on this thing. He's going to do what I would call a first century mic drop, all right? He's, you're you're going to say, well, God, that's unjust, that's unfair. And he's going to say, well, let me tell you what God said. God said, I'll have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy, and I'll show compassion to whomever I'll show compassion. Boom, he's walking off the stage, all right? What do you say to that? That's not Paul saying that. That wasn't Moses saying that. That was God saying that. I'll have mercy on whoever I want to. God owes me no explanation for this. I know that's hard because we want to require God to meet up to our kind of modern democratic notions of equity and justice. By the way, if you take that far enough, I'd be careful. Do you really want God to be just? Get ready for some real hot weather. Do you really want God to be just to you? No, no, you don't. You want God to show you mercy. That's what you want Him to do. You want Him to show you mercy. And you don't want it to be dependent on your works. Whether the stuff you did leading up to it or the stuff you do, you don't want it to be based on that. You want it to be based on nothing but God Himself. And that, that is what Paul is saying. Our confidence in this work, God is still good and loving and kind and just. Why is God good and loving and kind and just in this work of election? Because God is good and loving and kind and just. Man, I just frustrated a lot of you in saying that. I know, I get it. Pastor, that's a circular argument, but you can't be anything but that when it comes to God Himself. What justifies the actions of God? God does. Who else will? Who else will? Again, I know know this is a tough doctrine. I know it is. But I I would encourage you to see it from a different angle. And that, that is an angle of God's grace and God's goodness and God's love to think that God has even done this at all in the first place. Let me issue a warning. Be careful with the theology that tries harder to explain man's free will than to defend God's free will. That's theology off the rails. If my theology is more concerned with trying to understand man's free will than defending and declaring God's freedom to do as He wills, it is theology off the rails. Again, we'll, we'll end up getting into the whole human responsibility thing. We'll even talk more about the facts of evangelism. This is still our responsibility. Pastor, how's all that work out? I mean, if, if God chooses some and not others, and it's God's own will, He does it in order to show off His election, then why, why even worry about evangelism? All right, you've jumped sides of the coin. It, does God work based on election? Yes, I believe that. I absolutely believe that. Do I know who that is? No. Does it even matter as far as evangelism is concerned? Absolutely not. I'll I'll quote you what Spurgeon himself, considered one of the the, the great declarers of election in church history, preached all as if all were the elect. Absolutely. My side of the coin is all about human responsibility. The human responsibility side recognizes I make choices, you make choices. How does that work with God's sovereignty? The only thing I can tell you is that the Bible says it's compatible. Well, Pastor, how is it compatible? The Bible says that it's compatible. I know, but Pastor, how is it compatible? The Bible says that it's compatible. I trust Him. I trust Him more than I trust me. I trust Him more than I trust commentators and theologians. 
I'm not saying I distrust them. I'm just saying, at some point I have to decide, am I confident that what God's Word says is what God's Word means? Do I, do I feel this obligation to somehow join these things together? No, I've run up against the wall of Revelation. Here's what God's Word says, and I'm done wrestling with it. I'm done wrestling with it. No, that God, God has said, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Show mercy on whomever He wants to show mercy and compassion on whomever He wants to show compassion. That's God's right choice. I don't know how He's doing that. That's a divine mystery in the Godhead. It's not arbitrary. I can tell you that. God doesn't do arbitrary. What is the means by which He's doing this? I don't have any idea. The Bible doesn't say. That's okay. God has told me to love Him, obey Him, and tell others the gospel. So that's what we do. That's what we do. We share the gospel far and wide. We, we take that message to the ends of the earth. We recognize that God in His goodness, because He is electing, He is choosing some. God is saving people. He's even saving people in Newburn. And we can trust God's end, and we can trust God's means to the end. What's that means to the end? You are. Say, Pastor, does that go against everything you just said? Nope, because the Bible doesn't say that. All right? I know, man, that's so frustrating. But that's it. That's what I'm going to keep running up against to say, nope, because the Bible does say we're a part of this. We're a part of this. So let, let me ask you then, church, are, are you committed to just simply trusting in God's decision to display mercy as He wills? I would encourage you to rest in it rather than wrestle against it. To rest in it because it's an expression of God's glory. It's also an expression of our humility. And if that's still an issue, listen, I want you to know here today, if you still wrestle with this, I get it. I've had a lot of years, a lot of books, a lot of sermons, a lot of study. I, I have a heads up, I understand. And if you leave here today thinking, wow, boy, that was deep and that was over my head, I don't even know if I get all that, all right. It's okay. I hope you'll still come back next week. I, I, I love you, okay? I hope you love me. We, we can disagree on some of these things. It's all right. Just understand, though, that's got to be grounded in the Word. My prayer for all of us is that in light of these things, we come away, again, not trapped in what is our inability to fully understand, to express our praise to the glory of God's grace. Quite frankly, I don't want to understand how all, it all works. Because if I can understand it all, it's not that special. The mystery of it demonstrates the goodness and power of God. And we rest in that. If you're here today and you don't know this Savior, I, I would appeal to you with the gospel. Uh, again, we don't know God's side of the coin, but I will tell you this. If you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, and if you by faith trust Him and Him alone for salvation, if you confess you are a sinner and unable to save yourself, and you throw yourself at the mercy of God, I, I guarantee you the promise of Scripture is that God will save you now and forever. If you'd like to know more about that, I'll be right down front. I'll be here after the service is over. We'll talk to you more about the, the hope and truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that, is that how God would have you respond to His Word? Again, maybe some of you, you're still wrestling and struggling. Maybe you'd like me to pray with you. Maybe pray where you are. As, as we... Prepare then to stand together and sing, and sing a great song of the faith, ironically written by a guy who may not have agreed with everything I just said, all right?
You'll have to get in the history of that. I'm not going to do it for the next 15 minutes. Don't worry. All right, nonetheless, it is a great song of the faith that really, I think, resonates with everything I just talked about. Resonates with this goodness and grace of God. And can it be that I should gain? Why? Why should I gain? Why should I gain from the suffering of God? Why should I gain from His death on the cross? Why should this be something that God gives to me? I don't deserve it. I can't earn it. But by His grace, He's given it to me. Let us rest in the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stand together and I'll pray. Father God, we thank You for gathering us. We do thank You for this Word. We confess uh, that, that when we come into portions of Your Word that we uh, wrestle with and struggle with, we, we've got to depend upon You to either give us understanding or confidence that You are God who can be trusted uh, even when our minds cannot conceive of it all. We do thank You for saving us. We do thank You for the gospel of Christ. And we do pray, God, that You, by Your Spirit, will continue to do that work We know that you are doing it. Help us to be means to that end. Help us to be faithful and bold in the declaration of the gospel. Lord, let us see your saving work in the hearts of men and women in the city. And so to you, we yield our lives, doing us what needs to be done by your word, that you'd be glorified in us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.